Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whenever you're listening to this. This is Molecules and Shit, and this is a science podcast. I'm your co-host, P-Funk, at P-Funk and around on Twitter. And I'm joined by your host, Cookie Negra. Doctor? Sir? Yes. <laughs> That's true. We have two We have two doctors. Spoiler, spoiler alert. <laughs> we have two doctors on the show today. One is your host, as I said, Cookie Negra. And the other is, would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Yes, uh, Henry Williams. Yes, Dr. Henry Williams. So uh, do you want to tell the people a little bit about yourself? We talked a little bit off air, but uh, just to introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, yes, um, as Paul said, I am a microbiologist. Uh, I prefer to uh, be a little bit more specialized than, uh, with my interest, uh, microbial ecologist. Mm. Um, but I also have done infection control microbiology in a dental environment, a dental clinic environment. And um, I started, I guess, my uh, career um, in the uh, mid-1970s um, in terms of graduate school, both master's and PhD. And then after then, I actually took an interesting turn. Um, I uh, accepted um, a Congressional Science Fellowship, mm -hmm. um, and the purpose of that is to have uh, scientists to go uh, to work in Congress and hopefully to uh, better um, inform uh, congressional staffs and members about, um, about science. Oh, is and, that where you met Koki? Uh, and, and interestingly enough, Kokui uh, also did that. <laughs> okay, I was just asking, is that, is that where you two met? Is that where you guys crossed no, paths? No, actually, we met before then. Oh. Uh, she, she, I was at the University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore, which is the, um, basically the, the medical uh, and health sciences uh, campus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, upper um, Yeah, and she was, she was also there. Uh, she was in the medical school. I was in the dental school. And um, we are both members of the American Society for Microbiology. That's our professional society. And uh, we were both invited uh, by the society, ASM, we call it. Uh, we were both invited by ASM uh, to be members of a focus group uh, at the society's headquarters in Washington. And so... You know, we both showed up. You know, we didn't know each other. And it was only then, as the focus group members were introducing themselves and where they were located, that we kind of discovered that we were both on the same campus. Mm. Um, and, and, and subsequent to that, uh, you know, it was some months, maybe some years, um, I actually had a need for a postdoc. in my laboratory, mm -hmm. and um, I asked Kokui about it, her availability, and so she came on um, and, uh, you know, contributed greatly to, to my research interests because I had also at that time become an administrator, so I wasn't there to, you know, take care of things on a day-to-day -day basis, and she did that but came up with, you know, her own uh, innovative ideas and, and, and contributed greatly to that, and we have publications together about that. Um, and then um, I have been at University of Maryland eh, for, what, 30-some years or so. 
And so I decided to um, just kind of spread my wings a little bit, and I accepted an offer down at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, as I said, in the School of Environment. And so I've been there pursuing my interests, which has been going on for a good 40 years, I think, uh, pursuing my interest studying these predatory bacteria called Bedella vibrio-like organisms or baloes. Okay, so I have I have so many questions. So the first wait before wait wait <laughs> before you start your questions. Okay, that is a true story. Absolutely, it is not the first time Henry and I met. Yeah, he I was I was just about to ask that. <laughs> I was about to ask that first. <laughs> yeah, so so. He probably doesn't remember this because why would he? But I certainly remember it. Um, the first time I attended an ASM annual meeting, and I hate to even say this date, but I believe it was 1989. Mm -hmm. um, I was a graduate student, and there was um, a social event called the Black Microbiologist Mixer. What, it seven of you there? Minority. They had to go out and get the money from Procter & Gamble to even host it. And my, my research advisor, who is a white woman, she, she's not a minority at all, and she said, go find out what that is. So I went to the meeting, and there were nothing except people on the minority committee at ASM in this room. I was the first student to show up. I sat down at the table. Henry was there. Uh, Jesse Price was there. Uh, Gerald Stokes was there, I think. Oh, wow. Ev everybody was there. And that's the first time I met Henry. And honestly, between that time and this, there has not been a big decision in my career that I've made that I didn't go to Henry for. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, so, that's, yeah. So I you was... don't remember that, do you? No, I don't think I do. I've been trying hard. <laughs> Uh, but at this stage of my life, uh, Monday or Tuesday, I might remember. <laughs> <laughs> so what he said about me working for him, that's true. But I knew him a good 10, 12 years before I actually worked for him. Oh, but, wow. <laughs> yeah, because when he told the story of like, how is it you guys were two microbiologists on the same campus and had never met? I was like, how did that happen? Is the campus just that big? Um. Well, if you're in one division, it's not likely that you see people in another division unless there's a really good seminar and that you go to, you want to go to. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then so, yeah, so it's, 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 I guess it's like, uh, you know, working, let's say, in a TV station. Uh, and then so they have the they have the meteorologists, the weather folks. And they have their department, and then there's uh, the athletics, the sports, and they have their own offices and department in a different section and so forth. Um, and they're close together, but they don't necessarily uh, intermingle enough to get to know each other. They're kind of like silos. <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah, so I knew Henry. I just didn't know he was at Maryland the same time yeah. I was there. So I was Oh, okay, okay. Okay, so this is... One of the first times, I think I have to look back, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time we've had two microbiologists on the show. So I wanted to ask you both. We talked a little bit about it before, but what is your favorite organism to study and why? Okay, you want to go first? Oh, okay. Yeah, ladies so, first. Uh, Proteus mirabilis probably still. It's 
it's an interesting organism. It has a, a strange mobility, and it has the funkiest smell in the world. You can always tell <laughs> if your experiment worked or didn't work by the smell. Well, that must save on uh, devices. You just have to whiff it a little bit into your nose. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny, but a lot a lot of microbiology is about observation. How it looks, how it smells, how it moves. Um, so yeah, that's that's still my favorite. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as I mentioned before, those uh, predatory bacteria, uh, the balos, those are clearly my favorite. I've been studying them uh, throughout my whole professional career, and um, and I'm still studying them today. And they're just as fascinating today as they as they were when I first started. We obviously know a lot more about them today. And I'm happy to be able to say that um, I, my research teams, I say teams because it's been over several decades, uh, and I've had different folks in the lab, um, they, we, we know a, a lot more about these organisms um, now and so, but they're still just as fascinating as ever. And why do they pique your interest? What what about them? Well, so they number <laughs> no, one. Wait. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait until he hears this. What? <laughs> oh, you already know the answer. Okay. Well, no, because I worked with Henry, so I know the organisms too. Oh, yes. oh okay, okay. Yep, yep. Uh, so. Uh, I came to know them actually before I even, or maybe it was just in my in the beginning of my graduate school days. Okay, and we had uh, a seminar series, a weekly seminar series, mm -hmm. and students mm -hmm. and faculty uh, gave seminars on some topic, and so a fellow grad student gave a seminar on these group of organisms, the Patella vibrios, and and. This was probably um, early 70s, maybe about 1970, and the organisms had just been discovered in 1962, and they were discovered rather serendipitously because the uh, discoverers were actually looking for viruses that infected uh, certain uh, bacteria that were plant pathogens. Mm. And of course, viruses—they're uh, viruses that infect and kill bacteria. Uh, and so, um, in the process, uh, they discovered that what grew on the plates, uh, when they took a, 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 a harder look at them, that they actually were not viruses at all. They were very tiny bacteria that moved at a, an extremely uh, fast uh, pace. And uh, I think at one point in time, they had been uh, recorded as being uh, the fastest organism alive or something like that. Uh, clearly one of the fastest. And um, so, um, and, and they mount a very vicious attack uh, on their prey bacterium. So they're hunters because they, they have to, they're, their prey is their only food source. So they have to find a prey bacterium. And so they're swimming around in water or wherever, and uh, they're looking for these prey bacteria, and they have to find one very soon because otherwise they're 
they'll run out of energy uh, mm-hmm. and they could die. Um, so, so they're on this hunt and they're moving very swiftly. And when they find the prey, they attack it viciously. Uh, they penetrate inside its outer cell membrane, uh, gets inside of the cell, multiplies. It kills the cell, multiplies and, and, and replicates and then um, breaks the cell open and then release all of the daughter cells uh, and eat all the daughter cells swim around and try to repeat the cycle. And so it was the only organisms, I'm sorry, it was the only bacterium at that time uh, that was not. Wait, what happened? In such a, in such, um, uh, and so it, 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 um, it created a lot of interest and a lot of excitement in the microbial world. Um, and so uh, still to, to this day, uh, it does. And so fortunately for me, uh, there are two types of freshwater and saltwater type. Um, a lot of the initial work was done with the freshwater type because those were the first ones discovered, right? Freshwater mm-hmm. soil. Okay. Well, those were the first yeah. ones discovered. Um, the, um, the marine or the saltwater type uh, was discovered a few years later. So many of the early investigators had already focused in on the freshwater type. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of people worked on the salt. For me, because it opened doors and, and gave me a lot of space to operate. And I didn't didn't have so many competitors. Um, but uh, and that that remained uh, for for a while, uh, a decade or so. And um, so. Um, so, yeah. And so the, the uniqueness of it. Um, it just uh, continues to fascinate me to this day. They sound like bacterial sharks. That's what, that's what it sounds Actually, like. Actually, yeah. I'll, I'll be honest with you. What they what they really look like is: Have you ever seen this sort of mixed martial art? And you have a little tiny Thai guy who's kicking the hell out of a big <laughs> Russian guy. That's yeah. what it really looks like. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're smaller than what they hunt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. So that means that yeah. that sounds interesting. And can you actually and observe? Can you actually observe this in real time under a microscope? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been uh, people have taken videos of it, and um, oh yeah, fascinating. Wow. Okay. So and getting the water samples is also fun. <laughs> Yes. Wherever you go, you just get some water. Yes. <laughs> that 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 was before the days of nine eleven. Right. Yeah. So so we did this global study, uh, and we didn't have the money to travel all over the world to just to collect samples for this study. So basically, uh, whenever we would go to meetings, and microbiology meetings tend to be. Uh, global in nature. I mean, they're in many different countries, many different places. Uh, or uh, we also had, uh, uh, my labs have always been very international, so we've had people from other countries. And when those people travel back home or whatever, whenever, and then it spread beyond my lab. We knew of anybody that uh, in, our, in our university or in our school, that was traveling to some place, you know, we'd say, hey, uh, do you mind taking this uh, tube and, and, and bringing us a water sample back? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that was before 9-11. Well, 9-11... Can't carry flag, liquids. No, yeah. no, no. You don't want to get on a plane we with the water samples in a centrifuge tube. <laughs> yeah, you, then you get pulled into the little room for sure. Yes, 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 yes. But fortunately, we were able to sample uh, many, many places. And so it ended up actually being a global study. Okay. So, Koki, any uh, from a microbiologist perspective, anything else you think the people should know or you guys want to discuss? <laughs> like what? I don't know. I just want I just want to hear you two talk about it. I, I, it's like being in the room when people are having a meeting. I just get to observe. No, I, I will say, though, um, to me, this this has been our best guest and we waited a long time for him. And I, you know. Obviously, I have lots of warm feelings for Henry. He's taken really good care of me over the years. My family thinks he's my uncle. And <laughs> my mother always asks, how's Uncle Henry? She knew you were going to be mm-hmm. on the show today. And she, she says, hello. She's very happy that you're on the show. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of times young scientists don't really realize the the – how wonderful it is to have a good mentor who sort of looks out for you. Absolutely. Um, when I told Henry I was interested in doing the, the AAAS Congressional Fellowship, I didn't know he had already been this. Mm. So he's like, oh, yeah, this is how it's going to work. And, you know, so if Henry did it, I figured, okay, then it's probably a good <laughs> thing to do. So I should probably do this. And, you know, so I think it was, oh, my goodness, like 20 years later after his, I, I was on the Hill as well. Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. a fellowship yeah. that's still going on now? Do you? Or, it still is. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there are people on Capitol Hill explaining science, science, and we still have the policies we have. Is that correct? Well, I don't think anybody's on Capitol Hill right now. But. <laughs> well, well, that's well, that's true. Physically, they're not. That's correct. Even though it's in session, they're they're not there. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I, I there's there are still people. I was I was at a meeting at AAAS not that long ago. Um, they have a class this year, or it will start in August. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they run basically. They run August to to end of July. Uh, for me, it just so happened I was a fellow, and my last day was I think something like September seventh, because my first day as a faculty was the tenth, mm-hmm. and then we had nine eleven the next day. Yeah, oh, really? Who was it? The wow. next day. Oh next wow! Day. Wow! Wow! Uh, one of the things I think that uh, is so interesting, intriguing, and uh, is such a, a a good example for for young uh, is Coca's uh, career path. Uh, I mean, she she's done uh, her experiences are very much diversified. Uh, I mean, she's been in research laboratories. Uh, you know, conducting uh, uh, research and in, in, in my lab, she's also uh, is a molecular biologist. Um, and so that's a field that for me is relatively new. Or I should say that if it's not new, it's certainly exploded over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. And, um, and so uh, I'm trained more as a traditional microbial ecologist. So I look at how bacteria interact uh, with the environment, you know, other bacteria and 
and other things in the environment. Um, and so my strong point uh, was not the molecular aspects, and but the molecular aspects from that came very, very strong tools to be able to identify bacteria, to detect bacteria in a very, very rapid uh, manner. Hmm. Um, and so that's just moved the whole field along oh, just greatly, exponentially. And so, um, so, so I bought Coca on board uh, primarily because um, of her um, of her uh, molecular uh, skills and knowledge. Um, and so, I do remember, and she can probably tell the story better than I can. Um, that uh, again, I told you there's a freshwater terrestrial uh, type group of the Bedella vibrios, and then there's the saltwater type. So. Uh, I think this gene marker had been uh, discovered that uh, seemed to play a role in predation of the freshwater type. Mm -hmm. And she looked for that same marker in the saltwater type and didn't find it. Uh, so what it really meant was that when it was discovered in the freshwater group, it was um, it, it was it was uh, it was to kind of announce that, you know, this is the marker that's responsible for the predatory activities, attack on other bacteria and so forth. Well, the saltwater ones, um, you know, live a very similar life cycle. They do the same thing, but they didn't have this marker. And uh, she she was probably the first person to find it. I, I, I'm not sure she was the first to report it, uh, but I think she may have been, but hmm. she was the first to find it. Oh, is that about right? New or knowledge. Not find it is more like it. Well, first That's to discover right. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she was the first one to not find it <laughs> in the salt water group, which meant that this marker could not be, uh, you know, a universal marker for predation of the Bedella vibrios on it on its prey. That's a uniquely scientific accomplishment. I'm the first one to yeah. not find it. <laughs> yeah, not find it. And then I was talking about, you know, how interesting her career has been. So, uh, and the idea is that for young scientists to know that, you know, you can start out in, in one area. It doesn't mean that you have to stay there all the time. You know, you don't have to pigeonhole yourself. Uh, but again, so she did that. And then... Uh, following that, she um, uh, did the Congressional Science Fellowship, uh, went on Capitol Hill, and, and had uh, was heavily involved in science policy type things. Uh, came back to the University of Maryland as a faculty member because uh, she also had training as a clinical microbiologist as well. So, um, so, so she was well versed on the clinical side of things. Uh, so, so she came back, she did that for a number of years, but then she went to work for ASM, um, and again, in public policy, public relations, Kogi? Um, policy. Yeah, policy. Uh, he knows all your secrets. You know, <laughs> for a number of years, and, um, uh, you know, and, and has her sights on some other things, I believe. So um, anyway, so yeah, so uh, she's done, she's covered a lot of ground, done a lot of things, 
lot of different experiences. So in interacting with students, you know, she can bring all that experiences, all those experiences to bear and really provide students with just uh, an outstanding education, training, uh, mentorship, uh, direction. And uh, and also, I, I would say that while she was on the faculty at the University of Maryland, uh, she mentored students. And when I went to Florida A&M, and probably just before I went to Florida A&M, uh, I also started working uh, with some of the students that she had mentored. And I actually ended up uh, bringing some of those students down to Florida A&M for their graduate work. And so our connection has just, um, has just been, you know, very interactive and, and we've stayed in touch over the years and, and, you know, we connect and, uh, yeah, it's been great. That's the other good part about having a mentor, uh, not some, not only for the, the guidance and the advice, but also just as one as a cheerleader. Isn't he yeah. the best? That's mm-hmm. why I keep him. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we were at, at a scientific meeting uh, just last year on mentorship. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny because almost everybody who showed up at this little talk, we were all stair steps of mentors. So my former student was there. As a matter of fact, she's been on this show. She was there. I was there. Henry was there. And somebody that mentored henry was there wow (laughs) okay it was wonderful (laughs) so you can talk about it from all different perspectives and all different eras yeah it was great yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah that definitely should be like communicated to younger people when they get out of college is while you're there try to find a mentor try to find someone that you connect with in your field not just you know a professor to give you a grade which is why i mean also just leads right into our our first topic i'm I'm feeling for the class or the incoming classes at university yeah. because it's going to be uh awfully hard to find a mentor in the current environment <laughs> yeah yes. so i don't know if now, you, you, you you just you just hit on something that uh i had not necessarily thought of before but uh yeah but that's yeah i don't know I if think you i would agree with that it'll make it it'll make it a little bit more difficult. People just have to work at it a little harder. But uh, did you get the yeah. um, the articles or the stories that uh, I did? Okay, yes. so you saw about Harvard, the Harvard undergrad undergraduates and their yes. petition. Okay, so yes. just yes. to bring the audience up to to speed, uh, there was an article about this uh, the student who started a petition because uh, Harvard University announced last month that they're going to resume teaching and research in the fall in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak. So uh, student organizer Sanika Mahajan, uh, class of 2021, uh, we call on Harvard to postpone rather than virtually begin the fall semester if COVID-19 conditions prevent the timely commencement of on-campus activities. So I guess Harvard and a lot of other universities are making plans to go forward as scheduled, but just virtually. So just from yes. we have two educators now on, on the on the line. So what are your what are your first thoughts on, on that? Well, Henry. <laughs> yeah. So um, yes, I've I've watched this. And I've been involved in it with my institution, like many most institutions. Um, 
last spring when the students went home for spring break in March, uh, you know, basically said, you know, don't come back <laughs> on campus <laughs> uh, and, and classes will continue, but they'll be uh, virtual. And of course, um, that was something teaching uh, using that mode was something that was very new for me. And something that I did not think that I would really uh, be all that happy about doing. Um, maybe I was very fortunate because um, I had two classes remaining at that point, And both of those classes were small classes. Um, so we were able to conduct Zoom classes. And, and I was surprised that I thought it went really well. Now, for those students... And, you know, I've heard this, apparently the students have kind of organized themselves. They either found attorneys or their attorneys out there that have kind of said, ah, you know, this seems like ripe ground, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, maybe they're, uh, you know, encouraging students to do this kind of thing. And they're offering their services on behalf of the students at Sioux universities and so so forth. Um, but. You know, when I hear the students' complaints about this, um, I cannot say that that it that it really rings with me. Um, and there are several reasons why. Uh, so, first of all, I mean, we are talking about protecting uh, the campus community, the university community, mm -hmm. and that involves students, but not only students. It involves faculty, and faculty these days tend to be uh, close to or in the senior citizen range, which are a very vulnerable group, and also their staff. And so, um, so I mean, I think that you would hope that uh, – University students would be uh, would take a broad enough look at things and recognize that this is a threat and that what's being proposed is to protect uh, them and the rest of the university community. And uh, in order to do that, you might have to make a sacrifice, but I don't consider it to be a great sacrifice because of the fact that probably at most where students are being asked to do three semesters virtually, three semesters. Some cases, this might be two semesters. Students, you know, generally take at least eight semesters, you know, to, to complete their these days take nine or ten semesters. Yeah. So we are students only being asked, just, they're not being asked to do their whole college career like this. They're being asked only to do one, maybe one and a half, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, maybe uh, two or three semesters. And I, I just can't, I just can't understand the, uh, the resistance. To me, that's, that's similar to you know, people who resist wearing face masks that I don't understand at all. But um, 
on top of that, on top of that, I think, and this is something that I think is very important that I don't think many folks have thought about, particularly out of the students, right, is the fact that, you know, there's going to be a new normal. And a part of that new normal, we already see in many, many ways, uh, beginning to come into play. One aspect of the new normal that's going to be very important for students is that many companies and corporations have already decided and already told their workers, you continue to work virtually forever. <laughs> you know, mm. <laughs> we, we're, not, we're not bringing you back into the office, okay? Mm-hmm. You can work remotely, and we're going to transition to that. So for the students now, they have to take classes remotely for, again, probably at most three semesters out of their whole college career, is a, a real-life experience that will prepare them, some of which may end up working for companies that have their employees working remotely or from home virtually. So that's then a part of the real-life education that prepares these students for the future. Uh, and then one other thing is that um, I guess that um, I get peeved off a little bit. Uh, you know, when students now go into all this emotional talk about, you know, oh, you know, we want to see our professors, you know, what about office hours with our professors? They won't be the same. Uh, you know, on and on and on, right? Well, uh, at, at many classes and I, I, uh, across across the, the country, uh, and I've talked to you know various colleagues about this. Uh, one colleague in particular, they way before uh, COVID nineteen, right? Uh, years before, as students demand. The, 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 the professors will go in and present a live lecture, but the lectures were recorded, again, at the student's demand, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And so what happens in that case is that at the beginning of the semester, you know, there's a large attendance uh, percentage, you know, 80%. Attendance, maybe a little bit higher, maybe a little bit lower. But as the students now know that, well, I have an alternative. I don't have to come to see the professor present the lecture. The, the, the lecture is recorded. It's available to me. I can access it anytime I like, and I can look at it as many times as I like. I tell my students, look, you only hear the lecture from me once. OK, <laughs> but if it's recorded and most virtual things, I think, are recorded, uh, you can look at it as many times as you like. And so uh, so so but so again, the experience of one of my colleagues is that by the time you reach mid semester, the attendance has dropped from 70 to 80 percent, kind of down to like about 20 or 25 percent. 
because the great majority of students have decided that I really don't need or care or desire to go in and see the professor live. When I can access it, I'll take the option to access it, um, you know, the recorded version, you know, uh, on my own time, whenever I feel like scheduling. So, again, what I hear from some students, and I can't speak what happens at particularly at Harvard or any other university, but I've spoken to colleagues across a number of universities uh, to know that, uh, kind of the example of what I just gave, um, a, a lot of uh, students actually feel that they can do very well and prefer um, just to get the lecture basically virtually. So, Koki, what do you think? Um, so, obviously, Henry made a lot of good points, including the office hours, which if, even if you have them face-to-face, -face, hardly any students ever show up anyway. Nope. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But, but the other thing is, though, I do think that there, there is going to be some issue with some subject material. So I think it's fairly easy to, to do a lot of the, the liberal arts online. There's a lot of work you can do online. I can never teach you how to draw blood online. Yes. I can't teach you how to isolate bacteria online. This is going to be an issue for a lot of specialized uh, allied health degrees. I mean, you can't, the dental hygiene students can't do it online. Yes. Um, so it, it really depends on what's going to happen. And those people who are aiming for careers as sort of first responders and health professionals, they're going to have to go back to class. Yes, mm, I agree. And, yeah, so I think it, it really depends on your area. And for those of us who are involved in sort of healthcare, th there's just no online that will, will suffice. I think. Yeah, I agree. As, I agree. As someone who's. I've never taught at the university level, but I have attended university. And. Two. <laughs> I've attended two. What I would say is. I think what there's a couple of things that are not being said in the petition. So the petition does make a couple of good uh, points. They point to vulnerable students. So those are students who um, come from backgrounds where they may not have quality internet at home. They may not have a, a, a good computer you know, in the house, or they may live in an apartment with, you know, five or six other people, um, where part of the college experience is the facilities. So I'm paying my tuition to have access to these facilities. In addition to the lectures and the knowledge I'm going to learn, I have access to a computer lab, to a library, to a dorm room with a door. I have desks and, you know, there are these things that I'm paying for that's wrapped in my tuition fee. Um, there's also interaction with, you know, other students, uh, which is you can still have it online. The plenty of interaction happens on, you know, social media. But at the same time, it's a different type of interaction. And I, I, I do think that you're, is there, is, is there breathing or, Koki, can you hear that? Uh, I didn't, I missed, yeah, you went out for a minute. Oh, okay, I thought I heard like a, it was like a wind tunnel, I thought. Yeah, but it sounded like it was at you, not us. <laughs> oh, because I, I hear it on, on my end too. 
Hmm, let me see. Maybe it's me. It's fine now, whatever it was. Yes. Okay. All right. So I don't know which the last part you heard, but uh, my thinking was that, um, you know, there's there's parts of the experience outside of just the lecture itself that I think students are upset about missing and upset about paying tuition, especially at these private universities for. I think that's what's not being spoken is that I'm paying all this money when I could have gone to community college or I could have just done you know, some online well, I, course for my house. That is, that is much of it because why pay Harvard prices when you're getting University of Phoenix? Right. Um, in, in terms of instruction, and all, not that that's what you're going to get from Harvard professors, but I, I get that. You know, I understand, but I also know that uh, you don't want a whole campus full of COVID nineteen patients. Oh, I don't think I don't think that's the alternative that they're they're hoping for. I don't think that uh, with the, at least the students for this petition, I don't think they're saying that you should bring everyone back to campus instead. I think what they're saying is you should postpone. I think that's that's what they're trying to get at. They they understand the safety of having all these students, you know, descend on campus and possibly spreading it amongst each other. I think what they're saying is, well, then we shouldn't we should just cancel this semester and you know, we should start when it's better. Yeah, logistically, I don't know how you do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, and some places may offer that as an option. So students have the option to either do virtual or return live or just to defer, you know, the semester. Um, so I think that I think that with some creativity, um, which is not all that all of that deep, I don't think, uh, you know, you could come up with some solutions to the problem. So, for example, um, you know, universities are known to have two semesters, right? But actually, there are three semesters at most universities because, you know, people just don't count the summer, right? Because right. the summer is the, the makeup stuff or, or to get ahead, you know, or to get some special experience, right? Um, so, um, so let's say if you didn't have a fall semester, right? Um, you know, the university administration, I mean, if they wanted, wanted to defer the whole fall semester, right? Um, then maybe they could switch. So maybe they could have that fall semester that's following summer, hoping that, that, uh, you know, there's a vaccine or, you know, the virus is, is, is pretty much under control. Um, the, um, the other thing about, uh, bringing students back to campus, um, is that, look, <laughs> I'm sure you all, many people, the whole world is seeing how, uh, some people, uh, have acted, uh, over the past Memorial holiday. Right? Yep, at sure beaches, did. at pools. Most of these people are young people, college-age people, college students, right? We saw the same thing during spring break uh, in parts of southern Florida. So, you know, why, you know, as, uh, you know, why should, uh, what confidence is there that if we bring these students back, that they are going to 
uh, comply with social distancing, with wearing masks, even if the universe is requiring it. Okay. Uh, what what I you know yeah, I, I'm I'm not certain I have full confidence. I think most of the students will do it. Right? I I 100 agree. If you got 10 percent that don't at any particular point in time, uh, then you, as we know, this virus can explode. I 100 percent agree, and I think a better solution. I don't think anyone is going to. Um, get behind just bringing the students back and hoping for the best with wearing masks. I think that's a, that's a terrible idea (laughs) at the current stage. Um, I think what would be better is I I hope universities are instituting this, but there should be some more flexibility with perhaps uh, giving students the option to defer. So if you, if you think that uh, you don't want to do the virtual experience and you want to, you know, roll the dice and hope that things are better either spring semester or next fall semester. I, I would hope that universities are giving the students the option to go, Hey, if you don't want to do it this way, then you can just defer and we'll see you in 2021. You know, you can always do that. You could always sit out a semester though. I mean, that's yeah, not sure. even new. You could always do that. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think some of it is students are, might be concerned that, Oh, well, you know, if I, I got into this, you know, really exclusive school, I got into Carnegie Mellon or I got into Penn and I'm worried that, you know, if I defer, maybe they won't, I won't get in next year or, or I won't be able to, you know, hear from a certain professor or I don't know what the deal is, but I, it seems to me that's an easy solution for the students that don't like this virtual option to just say, well, I'll just see you guys next year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I, I agree. I, mean, I think that, uh, I think there should be options. Um, uh, but I also think that, again, you know, we are hearing the students' voices and and the faculty are likely to be relatively silent <laughs> as well as the staff, mm-hmm. this whole thing. But again, you know, talking about an entire and you're talking about a lot of faculty that are over 65 years old. That's exactly right. And, and that's a vulnerable group. And so what are you going to uh, do with that group? And I, I think by the same token, you should offer faculty who are not comfortable in coming back doing face-to-face. They should also have uh, the option to teach their courses uh, virtually. Yeah, and I, I mean, even there could be, especially schools that have the funds and the the resources, you could even set up something like an, an isolated studio where, you know, the professor comes in directly from their car. They don't interact with any students. They go into the studio with a whiteboard and a video camera. They do their lecture and then they go they go home. No interaction with anyone. You know, oh, that's yeah. horrible, though. Why doesn't that uh, work? <laughs> but, 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 Paul, I will go back to say something. And I read this in the, in the Harvard article. You know, they talked about um, those uh, students, uh, you know, who may not have uh, access to uh, computers and, you know, things like that. Uh, I, when I read that, I, I found that to be hard to believe for students attending Harvard. Now, I won't say that there aren't some students that might experience that, but I think the number will be very small. Uh, and, and, and the other thing that I would say is this. So 
the school that I am at now, right, a public university, historically black college and university, mm-hmm. and many of the students are first-time college students. Many of their parents are, uh, are, are below the poverty level, all right? And uh, basically, again, when, when we switched over to virtual, uh, my, my large class, which is a team talk class, that I had already done, done that back in January. Uh, so I had two small classes, uh, but based on what fellow colleagues said, uh, now these, these are students who you would really imagine might have some problems, right? Um, but uh, for the most part, for the most part, um, it, it was only uh, minor. And of course the faculty, the administration, um, you know, uh, encourage the faculty to be very understanding. Uh, you know, students, you know, had connectivity problems and that kind of thing. And I think university also uh, made it known to students that if you didn't have a computer at home or whatever, you, you could you could get one from the university. So, look, if, if, if that happened uh, at a university uh, like my university is now, uh, I, 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 I don't I can't see it happening at some of, you know, the nation's prestigious universe. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see like how people react this semester once they actually, you know, start the semester. And yeah. then um, I mean, well, we'll they had to do it th- this past semester, at least half of it. So, yeah, it's yeah. not like it's going to be new for them. Right. Well, Joe, true. But I'm thinking more along the lines of when the next high school class wraps up next spring, where are people going to be applying and where are they going to how are they going to be you know, approaching that? Are they going to yeah. still apply in the same numbers to, say, a Tulane or, a, you know, a U of I or something like that? Or are they going to go smaller and more local? Well, again, I, 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 Paul, I think if we were if we were talking about the fact that uh, virtual uh, classes, um, if this was going to be the norm for three or four years of your college experience, then I could see that. Right. That, that might be a factor. Uh, one, you know, going for students coming in the fall again, two semesters, probably. Uh, you know, I really, I really, I really can't see that being much of a problem. And in fact, Paul, in fact, here's another angle to look at it. One of the reasons that many first year students have problems in college, okay, is because it's their first time away from home. True. And they, 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 they're still in this relatively immature kind of stage of life. And, and college is a big adjustment. And the other thing about the co- going to college, look, you are throwing 17 and 18-year-olds primarily into a population, into a community that also has... 21, 22, 23-year-old people, okay? And so, 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 so this is a, 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 this is a, a real, you know, challenging experience. So we know 
that a lot of times, you know, a lot of freshmen get, you know, even though they're smart, intelligent, they just get misguided because, you know, they get into the party scene. They got to make every athletic event. They got to make, you know, all the all the clubs in town or something like that, right? And they get misguided and, and, and get into that. Virtual learning for some of those students really might be very helpful because they are focusing on the, on the content of their classes, their lectures. They still may be living at home. So there's some... Yeah, there's some there's a little there's a little bit of parental oversight, you know, uh, but also I'm just saying that and the students, they want to interact. They'll figure out a way to do it um, virtually. But but the universities can set up, you know, usually for these classes, they'll chat. Students can chat with each other, can do these kinds of things. But, yeah, they, they can form study groups if they want. They, they're very good at figuring stuff like that out. Um so, yeah, so I, I think that doing uh, virtual for, for first-year students may not be all that bad. Yeah, I think if the if they get the virus under control by next fall, then ultimately, yeah, the, the yeah. amount of sacrifice is minimal. But, I mean, right now, that's kind of up in the air. Yeah, I know. I, I would agree. But I would think that by, I would think that by next fall, uh, I, I'd be a bit surprised if uh, there weren't between a combination of, of vaccines and also, um, uh, you know, some treatments. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, the virus will be pretty well controlled. Uh, one of the things that um, yeah, I was talking with a group of friends um that we talk uh, every week, and, and not everybody is a scientist at all. Um, but people were saying, there were some people that were fearing, uh, I'm not going to be the first to take, I'm not going to take the vaccine that come out first, right? <laughs> roll, the batches that roll out first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't trust them. I'm not I, learned, that I learned that from because, Koki. <laughs> because they said the experts say that, you know, it takes four or five years for a vaccine to be developed, right? So they said, no, so th- this is much too quick. And, and I agree, there's, there's some concern that I have about that as well. However, uh, my response to that is this, the technology has moved so fast, right? So your father's car, or your, yeah, I say your father's first car, mm-hmm. how long did it take that car to roll off the assembly line? Now, I don't know the answer to that question. Oh, me neither. <laughs> I, 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 I would think I would think that that however long it took that the car that you buy today came off that assembly line about <laughs> about ninety percent faster. <laughs> so, if your father's car took a week to roll off the assembly line, today's car probably a few hours. <laughs> I would guess. So the same things happen with technology in the laboratory. There are some amazing instruments out there. And I was just talking to a colleague, you know, his university bought this instrument. And, you know, they load the instrument up and 
Uh, they go home at night. The instrument does all of these things, make all these changes, inoculate all these tubes, do all this stuff. And they come back the next morning and they got data to look at. And and I asked the colleague, how long would that have taken you, you know, 10 years ago, you know, before you had that instrument? Oh, probably taken a week. So what my point is, is that the technology has advanced to the point that things can be done much quicker than they used to be. My, my concern is that there's so much at stake in terms of <laughs> and money <laughs> that, you know, there's this big rush to be the first one or two or three out there because those are going to be the big winners financially. Um, that concerns me more than just the capability to be able to do it. Um, and, and also, I mean, doing science like doing anything else, uh, it does require time to think about so the results can roll out quickly. So if the... And still, I mean, I guess artificial intelligence can do some of this stuff. But the human mind has to process that and decide what to do with it and what should be next. So if the virus is under control by, say, next next fall, do you do you anticipate that social distancing and other uh, like face masks and gloves or that is that still going to be recommended or required or will it be controlled to the point where we can pretty much get back to normal? I, I would think that there you may want at least one, you, when you reach that point where the public health officials and the folks say, the community say, look, this is under control um, and, and we don't need to do these things anymore. Uh, I, I would say uh, let, let's go an additional six months just to be on the safe side and let's try to keep these things in place. And, and the reason I would say that is because if we were if we were talking about influenza, you know, which kills people, right? Um, depending on the strain and so forth. But I mean, in general, and, and you know, um, most people, you know, get over influenza, but it still kills people. Um, but this virus, if if it if it keeps up its current uh, trend and activities, uh, this virus uh, just attacks. Uh, the body and just does such horrible, you know, almost unrecoverable damage, you know, with such a high mortality rate. Uh, I would rather err on the side of even once we think we got it under control, let's continue to take uh, some, some precautions. And those of you who are careful listeners of this podcast have heard me make the, the car analogy before, which just goes to show you you are never truly free of your advisor's influence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that right? You done that? Okay. I, I did the car thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, oh, great. Microbiologists <laughs> think alike. I thought I was an original on that. You were. I was just copying you. I just got to it first. That's all. <laughs> but but I'm glad to know that somebody that uh, came came under my mentorship uh, came up with it first. <laughs> well, I hope I hope that you're both right because I need this virus to get 
under control as quickly as possible because I like meat. And from what I hear, (laughs) the meat industry is taking a beating because I I don't I've never been inside a meat factory. I don't know what goes into it, but apparently there must be standing in front of each other, breathing into each other's mouths. I don't understand how it's passing so quickly between the workers at these these plants. Well, I actually had to do a primary cell culture some time ago when I was in graduate school. And so I was in a pig processing plant because I needed I needed the trachea. And yes, it's like an assembly line and the people are standing next to each other. And, you know, somebody's chopping this and somebody's cutting that and somebody's, you know, skinning this. And they are all very close to to each other. I mean, we're lucky we have not worked in factories, but pretty much all factories are like that. But I thought they were wearing masks and gloves. Are aren't they? Or do they not do that anymore? Um Well, it took them a long time to to start the practice, I right. believe, for many right. companies. And and I mean, look, a mask, you know, can only provide so much protection uh because um you know, I think you probably got a lot of aerosols or mist or something that's also in the air in, in some of these factories. But, but in any case, um, I mean, uh, a medical team, surgeons and so forth, the ma- masks do have um, a life. Um, they do have a lifespan yeah. wearing them, and and that lifespan is only probably for. I don't know. I, from a long time ago, I remember maybe two or three hours or something. Um, so it's, it is a matter of hours, and it's not a matter of eight hours. Right. <laughs> and so, so um, that, yeah. that lifespan, is, is that protecting people who are wearing the mask or protecting people from people wearing the mask? If, from if that... people wearing the mask. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, but also, I think a lot of this has to do with the people who work there. And if you do not value these people, you don't care if they have a mask. I'll get some more. I'll get somebody else. That's, I mean, maybe because I was looking at old footage or maybe I I misunderstood. I remember seeing like video of someone working at a, uh, I think it was a beef uh, plant a long time ago. And everyone was wearing like, almost like overalls and gloves and they had like that face masks the the um the shield like the face shield i maybe that's not common practice anymore is that what you saw when you went to the pig uh, plant um i remember well everybody had on the sort of outfit that you wear when you're a butcher um and i suppose they might have had some mask on you know, I was there to pick up what I needed to get and go. Mm-hmm. However, I, I just think that, you know, we have a lot more factory farms than we used to. And I think if you were looking at a video of someone who controlled the process from the baby calf to the steak, you might have seen that. But factory farms are not like that anymore. And certainly the processing plants are not like that anymore. Mm, okay. Well, well, that's more than frightening. Yeah. Okay. So there was a this. We're recording this on May thirtieth, but there was a, some testimony from uh, Rick Bright, who I know Koki had mentioned on one of the previous shows, and I saw that um, he was testifying in front of Congress, and I saw this summary of key points of his testimony. I just kind of wanted to get you guys' thoughts on it. 
Uh, he was testifying, basically, uh, he be, was a whistleblower after being removed from his post as Director of Biomedical Advanced Research and Development, uh, which is... Un yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he was a, a whistleblower working for as a director of biomedical advanced research and development, which falls under Florida. HHS. Yeah. Yes. And so I saw in the Washington Post, they had some of the key takeaways. I don't know if you guys watched the testimony or saw it yeah, at a later date. <laughs> OK, <laughs> so basically, number one, we all kind of figured. But he said that lives were lost because of inaction and unheeded warnings. And most uh, specifically, the uh, uptick, he was trying to increase the production of protective gear and he was kind of ignored. You broke up there for a second. Yeah, he was uh, trying to increase the amount of uh, protective gear that was, you know, manufactured at the time in you know anticipation of the infection rates and he was kind of ignore, ignored and pushed to the side yeah yeah that is all true and that that that's something that could have that was avoidable and it uh, clearly would have it, it would there's no question it, it would have saved lives um, and it would have placed um, first responders and healthcare workers. It would have greatly have reduced their risk of getting infected. Yeah, that was a bad one because that really was completely avoidable. Yeah, a lot of things weren't avoidable. I mean, we couldn't stop the virus from coming here. We couldn't stop the fact that it was an emerging infectious disease, and we didn't know anything about it. But yeah, the N95s, they could have made a whole lot more of those a lot faster. Yeah, and, and to place healthcare workers uh, in the position of having to uh, treat patients who are severely ill and in overcrowded, uh, you know, conditions in hospitals, um, I mean, that's 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 it's so hard for me to conceive that. And um, yeah. And the really? Yeah. The second point that I thought was the worst one is the the drug that never seems to die. Hydroxychloroquine. It keeps coming up in the news as possibly useful, not useful. Such and such took it. Such and such shouldn't be taking it. Somebody um, died. Yes. People in the VA are dying. Yeah. So, do you do you guys have any further insight? Has any more information come out about hydroxychloroquine that kind of puts this to bed? I wish. Um, everything I've read about it says don't take it. it. It basically will kill you. The only studies that they're doing are people who are basically in an intensive care now, and that's really look, we'll throw anything at it to try to keep you alive, but they're not really good studies, and it's not clear that this thing does anything except maybe make the president happy that people will try it. Do you believe that he's taking it or has taken it? I believe he's taken it as much as I believe he's had the nasal swab. Okay, I thought it was just me. I, <laughs> I thought maybe I was being, you know, conspiratorial, but I was just like, I don't think he really is taking it. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I I I would I'd be surprised. And they're saying that I this. I need to see. I need to see it for myself. 
Yeah, me too. I mean, if you're if you're gonna make such um, such a statement or such an announcement, and you really really want people to believe it, then bring it out to your press conference <laughs> and take it in front of people. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree. Am, am I a bad? He's not taking it. Am I a bad person for secretly wishing that he was taking it? I, I really wanted him to take. It. <laughs> yes, that is a bad thing. No, oh, no. All right, fine, fine. And they're saying that this this uh, controversy around the drug is the primary reason that he was pushed out. Yeah, that's what he says, and that's what I believe. I mean, I have been to many meetings that Rick Wright was part of. Um, he doesn't know me, uh, but I certainly have have been in meetings where he was a featured speaker and answered questions and all that sort of stuff and I didn't know he had this kind of backbone I really didn't he's like I'm sick of y'all I quit I'm out whatever (laughs) I'm telling it I just I I didn't know he had it in him yeah I think if you're in public health or you're in the medical field the 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 type of staggering numbers that we're seeing in terms of infections and death I, I think that kind of inserts a, a spine in you i guess so no matter how mealy you may be if if that's your background and that's your your passion and you're seeing this i i think that would definitely inject some steel into you yeah i i mean i just think it's it's his personality like you can see that tony is kind of combative and they're they're both equally smart you know but he just has a calmer personality uh, but apparently he has his limits yeah yeah but i, I I think I think that uh, I surely would like to see more people uh, follow that example. Uh, and Paul, I would just say uh, I, I'm not certain. Look, it's difficult um, for a lot of people. I mean, you know, you have people that you know have been working um, in their careers for you know 15, 20, 25 years, 30 years, they're right there close to retirement. Uh, And so knowing how the administration can respond, um, you know, for negative stuff that they don't like, you know, for for you to come out and be negative, I mean, that that still takes a lot. So I, I think that's not a burden that I think you can just put on people in the medical profession. Uh, uh, you know, because I think they're human. But I will say that 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 for the most part, I do think that people in the health profession uh, just they they have a deeper commitment uh, to trying to uh, get you know out you know really uh, what 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 the truth is. Uh, but look. When the president came out and said, take bleach, right? There were scientists there. Nobody jumped up and said, no, 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 no. You can't tell people that. No. <laughs> I mean, I saw I saw the reactions on certain faces. And well, right, exactly. They, they wanted saying. to. <laughs> people weren't popping up. People weren't jumping up saying, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is a this is some interesting times that we live in. Yeah, it is yeah. most interesting. Let's see. Okay, so the next thing that he brought up, so he's he had more pessimism in terms of the timeline for getting a vaccine. 
So, yeah. so he's so saying he's saying twelve to eighteen months is actually aggressively optimistic. I agree. So that I, mean, I, 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 I think I think uh, in my opinion, I think we, I, I think we could do it a, a little bit faster. But look, I, I also you know I hear what Koki and other ones are saying, and I, I would not argue strongly against that um, either. <laughs> So it very well, it very well could. That's yeah. The the thing that concerns me about how fast it's supposed to be is this is a nucleic acid vaccine. Typically, they don't work as well as the protein ones. Yeah. And so I'm just thinking, it, they, sure, they could have it in 12 months, but will it work? Oh, yes. so you're thinking more. Yeah. It's going to be a trial and error issue. So there'll be there'll be something a trial and error issue when it comes to vaccine development. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're running what typically you would do the phase one, look at the data, then do the phase two, look at the data, then do the phase three. What they're doing is they're running phase one and phase two basically at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. a bad thing. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and you know, I just, I'm, I'm not convinced i'm not convinced and i would probably be one of those people who won't take the first round of vaccine <laughs> you know i did a postdoc in vaccine development i understand how this works no i'm not yeah and, and i think so this actually this actually ties in directly to the the next point he said we don't have a single point of leadership and i think that if there was someone saying okay this these companies are going to be running this type of approach to the vaccine and they're going to be on phase one and this group is going to be working on i think maybe there we could be on a faster track but it seems like everyone's just kind of running their own race you know on their own is, is that accurate or are you seeing something different well i can only say what i see from the outside since i don't work for the federal government but it appears that every time they get a task force together or a work group together then the administration comes in and kicks all the the pieces off the chessboard so, like, they get a master plan and then, oh, we don't want that. Or they have leadership. Like, th that task force actually was worth something until the president decided, no, I'd rather have the vice president in charge. Who, by the way, is the guy that basically his policy single-handedly raised sexually transmitted infections and HIV in his state. Yeah. So that's the guy you want in, in front of an emerging infectious disease uh, emergency. So, like... Yes, he's right about that, but <laughs> there's nothing that can be done as long as we still have the same president that we have. Yeah, it really seems like everything is just kind of waiting for November, which is infuriating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, no, every, no yeah. one, every terrible thing that happens, any potential opportunity to introduce a solution, everyone's just like, well, we know that the White House won't be involved or won't contribute so we'll just we're just gonna have to wait till november it's like that meanwhile that people die. exactly it's it just yeah. boggles the mind I, i've never seen such a thing i mean i haven't been on this and, earth that long but jesus yeah and for, and for those people who who think that way um you know that i don't i don't think uh they they better be careful if they think that um November is going to automatically uh, bring a resolution to this. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if the election does go as we 
you know, would hope the virus is still here. <laughs> yeah. So, but it would be nice to have somebody who believes in science and actually would like to empower their very capable scientists throughout the government to run with it. That would be nice. Yeah. But but and, and actually, you know, there's been, you know, we've heard talk, you know, in the last uh, few months, or I guess the last uh, few weeks, uh, more about, you know, figuring out how to live with the virus. Um, and uh, I heard a, a scientist, a former Harvard professor, say um, on a on a show not too long ago that, look, you know, the way to the way to live with this virus uh, is to follow the guidelines, you know, social distancing, uh, wearing masks uh, and those kinds of things. You know, we can reduce, uh, you know, the infection rate. We can reduce the death rates, the hospitalization rates. I mean, we can do that right now. And New York is a perfect example. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this can be done. You know, the example is right there in front of us. Um, but as you pointed but, out, uh, Memorial Day weekend just happened. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so there's, there's this... There's this segment of the population that just won't. They seem like they just want to defy everything, and I don't. I don't know what they expect that it's going to bring them. And um, and uh, and this scientist that I was speaking of, his last name was Hazel Hazelton. Hazelton. Um, but you know, he was saying, you know, what is wrong with my fellow Americans? They don't want to make a sacrifice for six weeks, eight weeks, you know, to social distance, to to kind of stay at home. I mean, if you got to stay inside, if you got to you got to stay inside for three months, four months, six months, I, mean, I understand the difficulty that caused for a lot of people. A lot of people might not be able to do that. But if everybody who could do it did it then that would be fewer numbers off the streets and then people were out in public and people who didn't have a choice, at least that, that would make them safer. Uh, but the people who just defy everything, uh, take on this macho uh, kind of uh, attitude. Uh, yeah, but guess what? If they, if they get infected, uh, and they require hospitalization, are they going to be macho at that point and say, oh, no, 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 mm -mm. don't take me to the hospital. I'm gonna, I'll am i get over this. Yeah, are they going to be will. macho to this point? No, I don't think so. And then when they have to go into the hospital, guess what they are doing? They're exposing all of the healthcare workers to this all over again. And these are people in that, you know, crave that they'll take it home to their families. I mean, I think this country has kind of lost lost sense of of of, of direction. I think the thing that the, the kinds of things and thoughts and processes and 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 just perspectives that you know made this country a great country. I think I think that's been a lot of that's been lost. 
somewhere well, along the way. Well, I think I was I was actually talking to my dad about this uh, a few days ago, and it, it seems like from what I'm seeing and hearing, the people who don't want to wear masks and who don't want to social distance, they're they're treating the the lockdown as a punishment rather than a precaution. It's like a, when a four-year-old wants to go outside and play and the mom is just like, no, you can't go outside. It's thundering and lightning. There's a hurricane outside. You can't go outside and play. The toddler thinks of it as a punishment. They don't think of it as protection. And I, I think that's the, the link that's missing. Everyone's talking about this like they won't let me go outside. They won't let me do this or go shopping. But the thing is, it's not safe to do so. And you're endangering other people. It has nothing to well, do with, I don't want you to do that. <laughs> I mean, are you surprised that the average American is like a four-year-old? I'm not. Also, those of you who are longtime listeners, did you hear the rant? What? I'm not the only one who does it. <laughs> I, 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 look, I, I, I only rant occasionally. I, I don't rant every episode. I rant every episode, and I, I'm very happy if, <laughs> if I have to go and Jocelyn has to take over, she can do the rant. If we need Henry, he can do the rant. <laughs> I mean, this well, is... Paul, Paul, yeah. uh, something that I, that I thought about uh, a week or so ago that came to me, and it came from perspectives that Americans used to be willing to make a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And what I'm seeing now, we don't see that. An example that came to my mind is that there used to be a thing called the military draft. Oh, oh yeah. And every young man who turned 18 had to go and sign up for the draft. You still do. Selective service. No, you don't. Mm-hmm. But, but, Not really. But, but, but the difference is that but then they don't really draft you. There's been no right. real mandatory draft. So but 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 when I signed up for the draft, I fully expected that there could be a very real possibility that I would be called up for military duty and I would have to serve at least two years. And I think most young men at that time thought the same way and and women didn't have to sign up for the draft but many of them volunteered and the families of all of these people that were going into the military right they had to be left behind and they had to you know do without uh, you know their husband or their brother or, or whoever and and all of these people that that had to go they had to put college on hold they had to put you know their jobs on hold their careers on hold their their lives got put on hold but everybody pretty much yeah draft, draft dodgers but everybody pretty much uh, uh, you know, followed the system. And if we were called and we served, there was a sacrifice and, and we were willing to do that sacrifice, you know, for two years, at least two years. And that hasn't, it's been a long time ago, but it hasn't been that long ago. Okay. Now 
you ask people to you know give up going to the beach or don't go into don't go into bars for for three or four months and for God's sake they act as if you, you know, there's, there's no I, I just don't see the the, the 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 willingness to sacrifice and and that's what this country really was built on people having and being willing to make a sacrifice so this and if, we, and if we've lost that we're in trouble. So we're kind of veering away from science, but I do want to know yes. where, where do you think where do you think that kind of fell by the wayside, or where do you think that happened? Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm really not. Yeah, about that time frame. Yeah, because that that's when all the probably the Vietnam War um, got to be very unpopular, but probably a lot of young people. Uh, you know, and I guess, you know, their parents, some of their parents as well, um, just decided that, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have to be drafted. So then I think there was pressure and legislature passed to end the draft. Um, but I think, I think that could have not been a good thing because I think it helped to maybe uh, bring us to where we are today, where, you know, we went from where people knew they had to make a sacrifice for the well-being of the country, for the future of the country, for the well-being of society and the so-called American way of life, some freedom, democracy. Uh, uh, and, you know, people were accepting of that. Now... No, look, a lot of people's attitude is don't ask me to do any little thing that will, uh, you know, cause me not to, you know, enjoy life, even if it's for a short period of time. But, you know, I, again, I, don't, I hope you don't mind me kind of diverting us off the, the science track, but it seems like that people are willing to sacrifice when it comes to uh, race. So it seems that, you know, a large portion of the population is willing to do harm to themselves economically or otherwise in order to make sure that, you know, black and brown people don't get too much. So there is this sense of, you know, I'm willing to give up something for something, but it, it seems to be misapplied. I'm not quite sure I follow you on that one. Can, can you restate it another way? So I would say that some people would not vote for certain candidates or will continue to vote for certain candidates who won't benefit their community, who won't benefit you know, their, their job or their job prospects, but only because they have certain um, positions on immigration or on abortion yeah, yeah. or yeah. on, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, Money for for the impoverished. Yes, so they they are willing to make a sacrifice because they they are aware that you know I may not benefit much from this, but I I'm making a stand because I believe in these things. So that that feeling is still there. It's just it it seems to be wielded as a weapon. Yeah, it's completely selfish. That's what it is. 
Yeah. In a different yeah. way, though. In a different way. It, it's self. Yeah. It's selfish in that you are still harming yourself. You know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. But yes, 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 yes. And 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 people, too many people, seem to be too willing to do that. Uh, and I guess they think that in the long run they'll. There, there will be some benefit, um, but uh, I don't think that I don't think they are correct. If, if, yeah. I don't think that's a correct way of thinking. It's almost well, I like think it I depends think on. That. I think it depends on what they think the benefit is. If, mm-hmm. if it's to keep something away from somebody else, if that's all they needed, that's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost yeah, like someone. Well, I don't mind if I lose some as long as you don't get any. Right. And there are yeah. people who, who act that way, and that's okay for them. Yeah. It's... So, you know, I think what a lot of people who think that way may not see clearly or may not have a deeper understanding of how, you know, society kind of works, right? Um, and, and, and that is that they, they really are being, they really are being taken advantage of, uh, really by a higher class, or the upper class, right? They've been taken advantage of, um, and they don't see it. They don't realize it. Uh, I mean, like, well, like Paul said, they're cutting off. Your nose is fighting their face, but but and but they they don't see that that they'll be you know suffering. So one of the things that I uh, I uh, kind of cover in a class and 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 on the topic of environmental justice or environmental inequities is that look. When we talk about, so when I grew up in my hometown, right, a small town in North Carolina, right, but my house was located on what would have been considered kind of uh, you know, an elitist type street in, in the black community. Okay? But uh, my house was uh, next door to a tobacco factory. It was one block from the railroad track. It was three blocks from the city incinerator, where the city bought all of the trash that was picked up and burned it, okay? Mm. It was about a quarter of a mile from the sewer treatment plant, Mm. which gave off this awful smell. So in the summertime, we got hit from the smell from the tobacco factories and the sewer treatment plant, okay? <laughs> now, here, here's what I tell my class, right? And so, so obviously, that's, that's all situated in the black community, and so that's clearly uh, uh, an environmental inequity. But here's, here's what I go on to tell my class. But, but, it's not necessarily, here's what it's more about, okay? than race, which can be the same thing. 
It's about the path of least resistance. Okay. Agreed. So the, the, the powers to be viewed that, well, we have already kind of, you know, uh, we, we've not fully given the black community power, right? So therefore, you know, they have less power than anybody else, right? So the, 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 so the, the, uh, so we're going to put it over there. That's the path of least resistance, right? Uh, there may have been some resistance, but when they look at, you know, the politicians look at where, where are the votes and who's voting, right? And of course, they had intimidated the black community, so the black community to vote, you know, the percentage of voters were low, right? But here's what I'm going to tell my class. Even if that was an all-white community, all-white, guess what? That incinerator still would have gone somewhere in that community. That railroad track <laughs> would have gone somewhere in that community. And guess where it would have gone? Again, they would the politicians would have taken the path of least resistance. And guess who that would have been? Talking about a whole white town now. It would have been the poor communities. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so I think that if 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 our whole population, whether you're white or black, if you understand that scenario, then all of a sudden it becomes not so much racial, although racial is clearly there, but it also becomes, I would say, it becomes not only racial, but it also becomes economic. And so those people that you're saying, Paul, that cut off the nose despite their face, right? Yeah. <laughs> what they are not seeing is that, okay, if their goal is, is, is achieved and all minorities or everybody that's considered to be undesirable is pushed out mm-hmm. <laughs> and the whole town is now homogenous, the whole country is homogenous, right? <laughs> Guess who is going to end up really, really suffering the most? On the bottom. Exactly. That's right. That's right. And I think it's also good to point out that resistance doesn't always mean in the streets. Sometimes yes. it means just showing up on election day. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it means going to one or two really boring, you know, city council meetings. Yep. But that's also resistance. So, cuz yep. I think I think that gets mixed up in it too. It's just like, well, we're not in the streets enough. Yeah, that's not the only way to resist. Yeah. Right, right. Oh no, no, no. Exactly. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So just to that's a good discussion. But just to close out, I did want to talk about the last two stories because they're kind of about the same thing. Um, they're talking about the this was in Science Magazine. And then they there was a piece also in The New York Times about the avalanche of new papers that has been created by COVID-19 and this um, this phenomena of preprinting for scientific studies. Now, do I, I'm sure both of you have experience with you know, preprinted articles and studies. Yes. And once again, I would like to make the audience aware that P-Funk has no idea when he chooses some of these things, how well I know them. In the last month, 
part of my duties at work has been to sludge through everything that gets printed on COVID-19. <laughs> so my, my day of duty is Tuesday. That's what I do on Tuesday. So sometimes there's 400 papers, sometimes there's 200 papers, but it is my job to go through all of them and make sure that we select the ones that our membership would actually like to read. You read through 400 abstracts every week? Um, well, it's not 400 every week. Oh, okay. <laughs> sometimes it's 200, sometimes it's 300, but it's a lot. I Never mind me, the guy who has the Monday shift, he's got Saturday and Sunday papers to do. <laughs> so I feel for him. I'm lucky. I'm on Tuesday. <laughs> but yeah, so they said that um, there's so many papers, and I think they there was one statistic. Um, I'm trying to see. Uh, they compared it to pre or post SARS to pre and post COVID-19. And I think SARS, there was something like, uh, let's see if I can find it. Da -da -da. It was something like a, a few hundred or maybe a couple thousand SARS papers and then 30 to 40,000 COVID-19 papers. And that, that's, just, that's just the, am the amount of science that's been generated, quote unquote, in that short amount of time. Well, I will tell you that everything that says SARS is not necessarily or everything that says COVID-19 is not necessarily about the science of mm. SARS-CoV-2. So there are lots and lots of papers that I see on a weekly basis that say things like uh, they're from like a psychology journal where they talk about how people feel in the era of COVID-19. Okay. And that might be research, but it's not research that my people need to see, so I can throw that away. So, I mean, they're telling you there's 40,000 papers, and that's probably true. No, actually, just a correction. Papers just that, just a know, correction. I don't want to mislead the people, but I got the uh, proportions right. I got the numbers wrong. So, more than 10,000 academic works have been published about COVID-19 since January alone, 3,500 of them preprints. By comparison, 29 studies were published before the 2003 SARS pandemic ended. Sounds about right. So 29 versus 10,000. That sounds about right. So, Dr. Williams, have you had to contend with all the, you know, the avalanche of COVID-19 papers, or do you leave that to others to, to parse through? Well, yes. No. <laughs> uh, uh, fortunately, I've not had to do that because otherwise, oh my God, uh, I wouldn't get anything else done. Probably wouldn't get much sleep either, which I'm sure is the, is the case with, with Coakley on her Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's um, uh, and one of the things that I, I think you were also going to touch on, there has been a concern expressed about uh, putting out information um, pre-publication, pre-peer review. Mm -hmm. So basically just going to the press and, you know, calling a news conference and announcing these, um, you know, promising results or these great results uh, before the work has been peer-reviewed or published. Uh, and that that would be a concern. Yeah, the so the New York Times um, opinion piece, they in the very opening paragraph, they kind of lay out this recent um, 
uh, situation. They said, uh, so last month, a group of Stanford University researchers released a remarkable study. COVID-19 infections in Santa Clara County, California, might well be 85 times higher than official estimates. And the fatality rate for coronavirus might be as low as 0.12%, the researchers concluded, which would make COVID-19 only as deadly as the seasonal flu. Within hours, the paper had been leveraged by conservative commentators and activists on social media forged into ammunition to support the, pro pro the protests against lockdowns and other social mitigation efforts meant to contain the coronavirus and minimize deaths. The right wing prospecting for proof that the severity of the pandemic was overblown had found their science plain as day. And what they go on to let you know is that this was actually a preprinted non um, uh, peer reviewed study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I've certainly mentioned many times what I feel about preprints that my primary issue is that I think somebody's going to steal your data. But again, it's it's not peer reviewed and it's sort of freshest off the off the machine. Here's the data we found. But I don't even think sometimes they have a chance to analyze it. They just write something up and it goes. Yeah. 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 I, I, my reaction when I heard uh, or saw the one uh, news conference uh, where the scientists you know, were reporting um, these great results. And of course, then the media, you know, when they open uh, the announcement about it, a big breakthrough. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then when I heard the actual report, you know, they were saying like, you know, we tested six monkeys. Yeah. What? Six? Yeah. Six? Are you kidding me? Six? There's no way, no way in the world that should have uh, even been made to be a public announcement. I don't think. Yeah, uh, that's a poster. No, no, yeah, that's normally a poster. what would happen, they would say, "Oh, you know, well, we tested in, in these six monkeys, and you know, you know, most of them survived. They didn't get sick. So now let's ramp it up to." to 50, 100, right? <laughs> <laughs> but no, they didn't wait and wait to do that. <laughs> yeah. And we, we've definitely had this conversation on what should be announced in the press and what shouldn't be many times on molecules and shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's been a constant theme is, is scientific communication because it, it really does seem like a push and pull in the era of social media. Because you want information yeah. out there, information sharing can be good, but at the same time, people seem to just claps on, you know, they clamp onto what, you know, uh, what's that type of bias called? Confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. That seems to be the, the insidious part of it. Yeah. Indeed. Okay. Oh, that was a lot of deep discussion. It was really nice to have, you know, two scientists who you know are in the same uh group so they can really kind of bounce off each other so i think that's good for everyone to hear well it's wonderful to to have henry with us i mean this Absolutely. guy is fellow for every organization i mean he's a lot better than he should be lowering himself to come and talk to us <laughs> <laughs> oh, no <laughs> <laughs> we can make him that. We can make him the, the official show mentor. <laughs> uh, uh, 
Although I did, I did say that to, to Coakley when she uh, invited me that, uh, well, how long does this thing last? And, uh, <laughs> an hour, hour and a half. Oh no, no, I can't talk that. I don't, I don't have that much to say. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I can get out thirty minutes, <laughs> please. Mm-hmm. Everyone, you know what? Everyone says that. A lot of people think it's like, oh, I don't have enough to say to cover that much time, but right, it, it, right, it, it right, always right. flies. But 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 I see that the strategy, I'm sure you all strategize this. You say, okay, so he thinks that he can only talk 30 minutes. And I'm sure Coke would say, look, this guy's a talker. He'll be there for at least an hour. And then, and then the strategy got to be, and... We'll add Coke on to talk with him. Oh God, yes, we'll get two hours out of that. Oh no! <laughs> well, j- just so you know, the target time for the show is one hour. We're right now at one forty-three. Okay, so you yeah. got two shows now, then, Paul. Oh, you know, you know what? We could make a part two, part one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think so. I think I think you ought to divide it and make it two shows. <laughs> Make people have to come back the following week. So if you want to know what he said yeah. next, you got to come back. Right, 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 right. Well, thank you. Uh, so. But it has. It's, it's, it's been fun. It's been fun. And I'm so uh, glad we got here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But thank Coca you. And, and I haven't 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 been able to spend this much time together in a long, long time. Indeed. You know, talking and everything. So. Well, that's the one good part great, of lockdown. Great. That's yeah. the one good part is that, you know, you do talk more with other people, talk more with your family because, you know, you're not going shopping or you're not running such and such <laughs> can't errand. Go yep. Can't go nowhere. Right. You can't be on vacation. So you might as well call your mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And we definitely appreciate it. And I think uh, listeners will appreciate it, too. Okay. All right. Well, this has been great. Thank you, guys. And uh, Coco, I look forward to hearing or seeing from you next time. All righty, then. Now, if people want to... Paul, you take care. Thanks again. You too. Now, if people want to engage with you, where can they find you? Is there a... Do you have any social media or an email or anything if people had questions or... Uh, I don't do social media because Lord knows I can I can I got three email accounts that I can just barely get through these things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh Lord. We'll put one of your emails in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, so okay, so if anybody if you had any questions or if anything was, you know, if you're considering, you know, being involved in microbiology or you're a student of microbiology and just wanna pick his brain, we'll we'll have an email in the show notes that you can look at. Okay. That sounds good. All right. But again, uh Koki, where can the people find you? You can always find me at Koki Talks Trash uh, on Twitter. You can find the show notes at you know molecules. That's our, our show account. Yep, and you can find me uh, at P Funkin' Around on Twitter. And uh, the show handle is capital U, K-N-O-W, Molecules. All right, so that wraps up another show. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Have a good all week. All right, thank you. You all have a good day. <laughs> Thanks, Henry.